Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast bonus with my co-host, Matthew Westgate. And our book today, Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. And yes, this is the complete and unabridged collectible classics version. You'll be able to hear me thumbing through this on the podcast today, and you'll be able to see it on the video if you're watching this on YouTube, which of course, if you are, because this is a kid's podcast today, please go on, please, before you go on YouTube, ask your parents' permission. It's a dangerous place out there. Anyway, this is going to be Lewis Carroll. This is going to be Alice in Wonderland. And so that's a copy you can get at your local bookstore or your local library. And of course, we're going to be talking to Matt today, who is revisiting us from his Pinocchio episode to talk with us about well, about Lewis Carroll's writing and what we can learn as kids from Alice in Wonderland. Hello, Matthew. Hey, Son, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. And so we're going to open with me reading, and it's going to be a little bit of a long piece, so I would ask you to bear with me out there, folks, as we read directly from the first chapter in Alice in Wonderland. And I quote, Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversation? So she was considering in her own mind, as well as she could, for the hot day made her feel very sleepy and stupid, whether the pleasures of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies, when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. There was nothing so very remarkable in that, nor did Alice think it was very much out of the way to hear the rabbit say to itself, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be late. When she thought it over afterwards, it occurred to her that she ought to have wondered at this, but at the time it all seemed quite natural. But when the rabbit actually took a watch out of its waistcoat pocket and looked at it and then hurried on, Alice started to her feet, for it flashed across her mind that she had never before seen a rabbit with either a waistcoat pocket or a watch to take out of it, and burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it and, fortunately, was just in time to see a pop down a large rabbit hole under the hedge. In another moment, down went Alice after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. The rabbit hole went straight, like a tunnel for some way, and then dipped suddenly down, so suddenly that Alice had not a moment to think about stopping herself before she found herself falling down a very deep well. Either the well was very deep or she fell very slowly, for she had plenty of time as she went down to look about her and to wonder what was going to happen next. First, she tried to look down and make out what she was coming to, but it was too dark to see anything. Then she looked at the sides of the well and noticed that they were filled with cupboards and bookshelves. Here and there, she saw maps and pictures hung upon pegs. She took down a jar from one of the shelves as she passed. It was labeled orange marmalade. But to her great disappointment, it was empty. She did not like to drop the jar for fear of killing somebody underneath so managed to put it into one of the cupboards as she fell past it. Well, thought Alice to herself, after such a fall as this, I shall think nothing of tumbling downstairs. How brave they'll all think of me at home. Why, I wouldn't say anything about it, even if I fell off the top of the house, which was very likely true. Down, down, down. Would the fall never come to an end? I wonder how many miles I've fallen by this time, she said aloud. I must be getting somewhere near the center of the earth. Let me see. That would be 4,000 miles down, I think. For you see, Alice had learned several things of this sort in her lessons in the schoolroom, and though this was not a very good opportunity for showing off her knowledge, as there was no one to listen to her, it was still a good practice to say it over. Yes, that's about the right distance, but then I was 
wonder where latitude or longitude I've got to. Alice had no idea what latitude was or longitude either, but thought they were nice grand words to say. Presently she began again, I wonder if I shall fall rightly through the earth. How funny it'll seem to come out among the people who that walk on their heads, walk with their heads downward. The antipathies, I think. She was rather glad there was no one listening this time, as it didn't sound like at all the right word. But I shall have to ask them what the name of their country is, you know. Please, ma'am, is this New Zealand or Australia? And she tried to curtsy as she spoke. Fancy curtsying as you're falling through the air. Do you think you could manage it? And what an ignorant little girl she'll think me for asking. No, it'll never do to ask. Perhaps I shall see it written up somewhere. Now she continues to fall and thinking about bats eating cats. And finally, well, the fall is over. Alice was not a bit hurt. She jumped upon her feet in a moment. She looked up, but it was all dark overhead. Before her was another long passage, and the white rabbit was still in sight, hurrying down it. There was not a moment to be lost. Away went Alice like the wind, and was just in time to hear it say as it turned a corner, Oh, my ears and whiskers, how late it's getting. She was close behind it, that's the white rabbit, when she turned the corner, but the rabbit was no longer to be seen. She found herself in a long, low hall, which was lit up by a row of lamps hanging from the roof. There were doors all round the hall, but they were all locked. And when Alice had been all the way down one side and up the other, trying every door, she walked sadly down the middle, wondering how she was ever able to get out again. Suddenly, she came upon a three-legged table, all made of solid glass. There was nothing on it except a tiny golden key. And Alice's first thought was that it might belong to one of the doors of the hall, but alas, either the locks were too large or the key was too small, but at any rate, she could not open any of them. However, on the second time round, she came back. She came upon a low curtain she had not noticed before, and behind it was a little door about 15 inches high. She tried the little golden key in the lock, and to her great delight, it fitted. Alice opened the door and found that it led to a small passage not much larger than a rat hole. She knelt down and looked along the passage into the loveliest garden you ever saw. How she longed to get out of that dark hall and wander about among those beds of bright flowers and those cool fountains, but she could not even get her head through the doorway. And even if my head would go through, Alice thought poor Alice, it would be of very little use without my shoulders. Oh, how I wish I could shut up like a telescope. I think I could if I only knew how to begin. For you see, so many out-of-the-way things had happened lately that Alice had begun to think that very few things indeed were really impossible. Welcome to the podcast, kids. That was a very long excerpt. I mean, that's literally like the almost the entire first chapter there of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Now, for those of us who are kids or kids at heart, you've probably seen literally every variation of Alice in Wonderland ever, from <laughs> Disney all the way to Tim Burton. And so there is, uh, it's like a, it's like the old school Baskin Robbins. And if you don't know what that is, ask your parents. Uh, there's there's 34 flavors, right? There's enough <laughs> for everybody with Alice in Wonderland. Published all the way back in 1865 by a, by the, by a fine fellow whose pen name was Lewis Carroll, but whose real name was Stuart Dodson Collingwood, a mouthful of a name if you've ever had heard of one. This Victorian tale tells the first part of the adventures of Alice, who, initially following a mere curiosity, like we just read, winds up in the most unlikeliest place of all. 
And when we think about possibility as kids, as leaders leading others, or even just as kids at heart, this is an area that, well, sometimes it may seem as though in your life, depending upon how young you are, it may seem as though it stretches before you like an abundance or like a giant field of wheat. The promise of childhood, though, must be focused in a direction in adulthood. And no matter how old you are listening to this podcast right now, you do know that you've got to get focus. And that is one of the core elements here in Alice in Wonderland and in Alice's Adventure, and that we can gain from understanding and thinking about Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And occasionally, even though this is a hard and sometimes unforgiving process, a writer comes along and really points out some of the absurdities <laughs> of focusing in that process. And so, to discuss some of these absurdities and to make some sense of it, we are welcoming back Matthew Westgate, who was formerly with us on our episode on Pinocchio, uh, which is my son's favorite episode of the podcast, other than his own. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's it's got good taste. It's hard to compete with that. It's, it is hard to compete with that. There's a number one and there's a number two, and Dad is not on that list. So <laughs> let's uh, let Dad get out of the way. And let's go ahead and talk with Matt today. So Matt, we opened up with Alice in Wonderland. We opened up with Alice falling down the rabbit hole, kind of similar to Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, which we'll also yep. cover in the podcast here in a few months, uh, coming out of the house and, you know, after a, after a tornado comes through Kansas, right, and realizing that she's not in Kansas anymore. Well, Alice fell, falls down a hole, uh, you know, looks through a keyhole and sees an entire garden and realizes she's not in Victorian England anymore. So tell us a little bit about what we can learn as children or as children at heart from the absurdity of adulthood from Alice's adventures in Wonderland. Man, uh, what a great question. I, I can't think of a I can't think of a better description of adulthood than frankly absurdity. Many times <laughs> uh, so much of what we experience in life doesn't always make a great deal of sense to us. Uh, but you know, there is a sense to it. You've just got to labor, you've got to think, you've got to, as you said, you've got to use the word focus so much of the time. And even with your focus, you sometimes are blessed to find uh, a little bit of clarity mm -hmm. as you get going with things. So, no, it's really good. You know, it's interesting as you were reading through chapter one, Hassan, uh, several things jumped out to me that honestly, uh, you know, I've, I've like you have watched the Disney films uh, and have kind of taken on some of the enjoyment of that. But I think something that Carol does so expertly here is captures inner dialogue in, in a person. Uh, so much of our lives is spent talking to ourselves, whether that's verbally out loud or in, within our heads. Uh, I think he has done a brilliant job of capturing what that is like. So first off, I would just tell any of my young friends listening today, uh, if you're someone who has to like think out loud and process things out loud, uh, you are in good company. Uh, and you, uh, that, that sometimes is a crucial part. In fact, if I could just offer that as my first piece of encouragement, uh, it wasn't until just a couple of years ago that it dawned on me that I was actually a verbal processor. I have to think through things out loud. 
So whether that's talking that through with somebody, in fact, uh, we can't see it all that well behind me now, but uh, I just had a team of people in here, my team over at my school. Uh, I just pitched a new idea to them and I just told them, I'm going to share a whole bunch of stuff and your job is to make sense of what I just said. Uh, and you know what? They're good enough that they were able to make a lot of sense out of it. So let me just say this first off. Uh, you see Alice is dealing with words. Uh, she's just sharing anything and everything that's coming to mind. You know, a lot of times that's how thoughts go. We call this stream of consciousness. Uh, and so you see her thinking about, well, how far is this from the ground? And, ooh, I know this word latitude and longitude. Uh, you get That's an exciting thing when you get to pull out words. But I would just ask you, make sure, are, are you sure you know what you're saying? Like, are, are you sure? Yeah. Uh, that's something I've had to even think through. I've used words that I realized I had no idea what I actually said. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, young person, if you could get this down, oh, my goodness, you please run for politics. Uh, we have so many of our nation's leaders in the United States who struggle with this, using mm -hmm. words they don't understand, uh, using words that aren't clear. Mm -hmm. And if I could just urge you, uh, it really is such a great service to others and yourself when you are intentional uh, with your language and when you are clear with the words that you are using. My friends, go get a dictionary and make it your best friend. It is okay. Adults need to use it. I have to use it often. So I would say that to you. Um, but at the same time, too, you know, it's funny, you even see Alice doing a little bit of what's called self-censorship. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I shouldn't think like that. You know, there are times where that's appropriate, but I would also encourage you, uh, it's good to journal your thoughts. All right. Now, obviously, uh, I don't think that's an option for, for Alice on her way down the rabbit hole, but... You know what? Sometimes life just going down the rabbit hole, you got to just take out a piece of paper and write some things down. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether that's confusion or whether that's just uh, you just got a lot going on that day. Sometimes just getting that stuff out on a piece of paper can be a huge blessing to you. And you know what? It can take some of that absurdity that you feel, some of that craziness, maybe some of that overwhelming anxiety that so often a company's life, uh, sometimes just putting a pencil to a piece of paper, and I do mean literally doing that, uh, sometimes just doing that can be uh, a wonderful way to lift some of those clouds and some of that confusion. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's two big ideas right there. You know, understanding actually three big ideas, right? Understanding how you process information can be hugely important for under, for not only communicating well with people, but also for picking friends or yeah. adventures that you'd like to go on. Being able to talk to yourself out loud. And if you're a verbal processor, being able to do that loud, or if you're an internal processor, understanding that, you know, you've, you've got to let people know, hey, I'm, I'm internally processing this. Give me some space, right, mm -hmm. for all of our internal processors out there um uh this idea of the misuse of language and words um due to a lack of knowledge or context 
Um, I wrote down a word here as Matt was talking, and it's a big word. You might want to go look it up, speaking of using a dictionary, but it's one of my favorite words that defines what this is. It's a malapropisms. M-A-L-A-P-R-O-P-R-I-S-M-S, malapropisms. It's this idea of using words that are decontextualized and sometimes a little bit off to explain concepts that everybody knows and everybody can contextualize. Uh, Adults have notoriously lampooned this. Comedic writers lampoon it all the time. These are words that sound kind of close to being the correct concept, but you know they're just slightly off. And everybody sort of pauses in the conversation and looks at somebody. And comedians make a lot of money, you know, making jokes around malapropisms, misuse, misused, mis, misused words and terms, right, yep. that are decontextualized. Uh, what some folks these days who are a little bit younger uh, than myself uh, may call mashups, right? Or even meme culture literally lives on malapropisms. Mm-hmm. And then this idea of journaling, I love that Matt brought this up because this is what we tell leaders all the time when we're working with adults, right? Writing down your internal dialogue can help you grow in self-awareness. It can help you understand who you are a little bit better. Now, is that going to help you understand whose you are or to whom you belong or your identity? No, it's not. But it is definitely going to be able to allow you to the space to ask better questions and mm-hmm. to begin the exploration of falling down the rabbit hole of your own internal stuff, which is sometimes a deeper rabbit hole than even the one that Alice fell down. Yep. That's good. Absolutely. Well, let's go back to the book. Now she, she gets down the rabbit hole and she goes off and she starts wandering. She starts eating some mushrooms and starts to drinking some drinks and, I'm not going to get into all that, but what I will say is this. When you go read Alice in Wonderland, uh, you will be reminded in real ways that we should watch what we put into our mouths and we should watch what we internalize into our bodies. Um, There is definitely a tendency among adults to take Alice in Wonderland when looked at from an adult perspective and put on it drug use, um, illicit drug use or things like that. And uh, there are even songs written about this. Uh, I think of Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit. If you don't know what that song is, go ask your parents. Uh, but that is definitely <laughs> and that is definitely a, a, a parallel to Alice in Wonderland and was influenced by Alice in Wonderland, but also influenced by use of mushrooms and psychedelics in the 1960s. Um, And these are very dangerous drugs, and most adults don't even know what they're doing. And we are not promoting that use on our podcast, uh, nor would I promote it to anybody. However, I will say this, the information in Alice in Wonderland, the story of it has been used as a justification for the leveraging of those Mm. drugs for quite some time. And that's not something that we, that's not something that we, um, it's not something that we approve of here, but it is something that is floating around. And so you may run across that, right, in your exploration of this book. Um, and even Tim Burton touched on that a little bit um, in his variation of Alice in Wonderland and in Alice Through the Looking Glass. And so there's options here because sometimes with this idea of absurdity, particularly in a world that seems to be even more absurd than the absurdity of a story, 
the only way to demonstrate the absurdity is to be more absurd, right? Mm -hmm. It's a pushing of boundaries, right? And Alice in Wonderland as a story uh, is a little bit more malleable to this idea than something like, say, The Wizard of Oz, right? Which is a little firmer, or even Pinocchio. But even there, sometimes you wind up in places that are more absurd than the story initially intended. Anyhow, Alice is wandering along after a few things <laughs> have happened, and, well, she winds up meeting a person. Well, not really a person. She winds up meeting an insect. And the illustrations, by the way, that go along with Alice in Wonderland are great. Um, and as a visual artist, I really loved them. Uh, and she, and, and the illustration that I really loved the best in Alice in Wonderland, other than that of the Red Queen, which we'll get to her in a minute, is the Caterpillar. So let's read a little bit about the Caterpillar. Back to Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Now, this is a whole conversation that they have. And so we're going to kind of go back and forth a little bit between the two of them. The Caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. At last, the Caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? asked the Caterpillar, or said the Caterpillar, sorry. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the Caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the Caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I can't understand it myself to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps you haven't found it so yet, said Alice, but when you have to turn into a chrysalis, you will some day, you know, and then after that into a butterfly, I should think you'll feel a little, feel it's a little queer, won't you? Not a bit, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps your feelings may be different, said Alice. All I know is I would feel it would feel very queer to me. You, said the caterpillar contemptuously, who are you? Which brought them back again to the beginning of the conversation. Alice felt a little irritated at the caterpillars making such a such very short remarks, and she drew herself up and said very gravely, I think you ought to tell me who you are first. Why? said the caterpillar. Here was another puzzling question, and as Alice could not think of any good reason, and as the caterpillar seemed to be in a very unpleasant state of mind, she turned away. Come back, the caterpillar called after her. I've something important to say. This sounded promising, certainly. Alice turned and came back again. Keep your temper, said the caterpillar. Is that all? <laughs> said Alice, swallowing down her anger as well as she could. No, said the caterpillar. <laughs> Alice thought she might as well wait, as she had nothing else to do, and perhaps, after all, it might tell her something worth hearing. For some minutes it puffed away without speaking, but at last it unfolded its arms, took the hookah out of its mouth again, and said, So you think you're changed, do you? I'm afraid, sir. I'm afraid I am, sir, said Alice. I can't remember things as I used. And I don't keep the same size for 10 minutes together. So the caterpillar here in Alice in Wonderland, 
um, is typically represented. Remember that drawing I said I really liked? Typically, uh, the caterpillar character is represented as a as a, a being, right, with a caterpillar body, and with no ears and a human face, which is really weird because you're sitting there wondering how does this bug that's going to eventually turn into a butterfly here exactly. And this illustrates something interesting that Lewis Carroll is trying to get to. Um, and it's this idea that without ears, he doesn't hear. Mm. And that is the key insight from the Caterpillar's interactions with Alice. Hearing the content of what someone is saying, like a parent or another person in authority, or even myself or Matt on this podcast, is one thing. But actually listening to what they are saying with your emotions and your intellect and your heart is a totally different skill set. And mastering the difference between hearing and listening and being intentional about what you choose to hear and what you choose to listen to is a skill set that can bring you immense dividends in your adult life. Matt, what can our listeners learn about the difference between hearing and listening from just that brief interaction between Alice and the Caterpillar? Well, you know, it's interesting as you, uh, you watch this dialogue and listen to this dialogue unfold, uh, it becomes fairly apparent as they're going that this Caterpillar really isn't listening all that much at all. Uh, and in fact, uh, Alice is having this almost identity crisis. Like she just, she doesn't know who she is. She keeps changing. She keeps shifting around. And uh, the caterpillar just seems to be completely indifferent to this. I mean, cold, unfeeling, just completely indifferent at all. And frankly, doesn't see any need to change at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, first off, what do we learn from the caterpillar about listening and hearing? Well, first off, uh, there is a massive difference between these two. And sometimes it's very obvious what it is. So you have obvious times where someone is talking, let's say, so for my listeners here, let's say your parents are talking and they are trying to teach you something significant, whether that's how to throw a ball or whether that's uh, any number of things. And I've seen it with my own kids. I've seen it with many other students of mine that I've, I've gotten to teach where they think they actually understand something. And the way you know someone is listening and the way that you know someone is just hearing you but not paying attention, oftentimes is in how much they're talking. Uh, so if they're talking a lot and they're not hearing a word that you're saying, and you can tell that from what is being said to you, you can hear that someone is just not paying attention to you. And oftentimes we're very guilty of that. Um, I want to say, and I should have had this better prepared in my mind, there was a coach that was very famous for saying this, and maybe, hey, son, you know the answer to this. There was a coach that is famously quoted as saying this, I've never learned anything from talking. Uh, oh, I think that's um, the former coach of the Bulls, I think, said that. That was. Uh, that sounds right. Uh, what's his name? Jordan's coach. Um I'll have the name in a minute. <laughs> Sorry, I feel bad to put you on the spot like that mid-podcast, but that uh so just just to put that out there, I think he's exactly right. Uh if you spend all of your time talking, 
you will inevitably be uh, be made to look foolish. And that's what this caterpillar ends up doing. He ends up completely foolish. Uh, Alice is having a very sincere conversation, and this guy, it couldn't be any more detached and any more aloof from, from what is happening. Uh, so in one sense, maybe it's what he, the activity that he's taking part in here with the, uh, the smoking. But you know what? How many things have you and I gotten involved in, whether it's social media or it's something uh, something that we're doing on our phones? My goodness, even just playing Wordle for me these days, I can tune out with the best of them doing that. Uh, I'll just tell you, uh, you you got to be very careful about how much you are truly listening to someone. Uh, so I would say, how do I work on listening? Man, that's a great question of the but you know what? Uh, it's very simple. It's a very simple thing to do, but it's hard because we don't naturally like to do this. At least I struggle with this greatly. Uh, what was the last time you made eye contact with someone? And I mean genuine eye contact. Look at them in the eye and listen intently to what they say without any words coming out of your mouth. Uh, I would even challenge yourself to this. What was the last time you looked your parents or an adult that you respect and trust in the eye for five solid minutes and just listen to what they had to say? And maybe ask the question, what is something you think I need to hear today? Uh, if you do that for five minutes, I think you'd be amazed at, first off, how long five minutes might feel. Uh, there's that one side of it. But I think you would also find out how much you actually can learn in even just a short amount of time. Uh, spend the time to intentionally do those sorts of things. I have to do this with my wife. Uh, I can't have a phone anywhere near me. I can't have any kind of distractions anywhere near me. Uh, that's something that I would encourage you. And first off, great leaders tend to have strong relationships. There's a strong connection there. And... I can just tell you the people that excel at relationships are great listeners. In fact, they uh, some of my favorite leaders don't talk a whole lot. Uh, they will just look at you and they will let you do most of the talking because they want to know what you're thinking. By the way, the person who made the quote, uh, I never learned anything while I was talking was the late great interviewer from CNN. Uh, that was later in his career, but uh, but uh, earlier in his career, he was a news uh, interviewer. And uh, your parents, or those of you who are a little bit older, may remember this gentleman, Larry King. It was not Phil Jackson. <laughs> oh man, I thought it was Phil Jackson. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Larry King. Best quotes by Larry King. This is according to Newsweek. I never learned anything while I was talking. And Larry King was the master of letting people talk. Yeah, so true. Well, and, and when we think about how a podcast works, when we think about what we're actually doing here when we are talking with Matt or any of the other guests that I've had on the podcast, uh, uh, in the, the big boy, the big adult version of this podcast, or even just uh, the kids' versions and the bonus versions that I've had of this podcast, bonus format, bonus formats. Um, 
The biggest thing that I have learned is that letting people talk, letting people engage in the process of, as Matt previously said, thinking out loud, right, um, and allowing them to work through those ideas is very important. And you can still have a conversation while you're letting people talk. Um, one of the things that we have to, and I'm glad Matt brought it up about putting down the phone and eliminating distractions, we also have to eliminate the impatience that distractions brings yeah. us. So good. And that's why this podcast, yeah, it could only be a half hour or it could only be 45 minutes, but sometimes it's a little bit better to listen and to think and to hear a little bit longer from folks. So. Yep. We do have to keep that in mind. Um, one point that I would add, and I think Matt picking up on this, and, and Matt, I'd like you to expand on this a little bit, is uh, at this point in time in the story, Alice is shifting around. Her her sizes are changing. Um, her body is changing. And, of course, in Victorian England during that time, which was a little bit of a different time morally <laughs> uh, than, than what the time we currently live in, uh, Victorian England was very much driven by uh, this idea of the body being this unknowable thing. I mean, we were mm. just on the cusp of Darwin really developing yep. the, the uh, theory of evolution. Um, Sigmund Freud had come yep. along um, and was beginning to pull apart. Uh, and actually, he would come along 30 years later and start the psychological pulling apart of how people deal, dealt with things like emotional repression and trauma and things like that. M many insights, which, by the way, have helped us, but many insights which also have hurt us, okay, um, just like everything else. Uh, during this period of time, there was a philosopher in Germany named Friedrich Nietzsche who was writing extensively about the philosophy of what it meant to be human. And then there was another guy in Russia who we've also talked about on the podcast, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who was writing about what it meant to be a Christian inside of a tyrannical or inside of a totalitarian system. Um, whether that totalitarian system was a monarchy or later on underneath Lenin, 40 years later, uh, underneath a different kind of tyranny, tyranny was tyranny, according to according to this Russian writer. So Lewis Carroll existed in this weird sort of milieu, this, this, this Victorian England era that was very driven by writers and reading, where the book was considered to be the highest form of technology, the way that we consider the cell phone to be the highest form of technology, right? And so everybody who was anybody read books. Um, most people who uh, who could not read at least knew or had an understanding of what the importance of reading was. Uh, there were books literally everywhere from pamphlets and dime store novels all the way up to uh, the kind of books we think of as being books books. And this was a society that was changing. And Alice is a girl that's changing. Uh, Lewis Carroll taught at a school where his students were changing on a constant basis. So walk us through a little bit about this change, you know, because I know children were aware of it the way that children are aware of change now in our in our current world. How can kids deal with this, deal with these kinds of changes that seem to be happening 30,000 feet up, but are having domino effects all of the way down? I mean, how many students in your class uh, during the time of COVID were coming in wearing masks? You know, that's a 30,000 foot up thing that has direct impact on folks. And the folks who are in your class don't get a vote in a lot of these decisions. So how do people, how do kids deal with change? Man, what a big question, uh, but it's such a good one. So uh, 
how to get how do young people deal with change? Well, prayerfully better than most adults do. Let me just start with that one. Uh, it's uh, in some ways uh, young people have have an advantage here. Uh, you don't you get to have a little bit of flexibility, perhaps, but. I, I would still say it's not any easier. So I would have first off an expectation in mind as I encounter change, which is this. Uh, first off, change will happen. Uh, I had a college professor who I think uh, rightly said to us, the one thing you can count on in life is change. Uh, I While that might be a touch cynical, like much of the philosophers of that day, uh, and I, being a person of faith, I don't think that's the only thing you depend upon. Uh, I do think you can you can expect a great deal of change. And childhood is a time of rapid change in your life. Uh, so there are literal size changes that you're going to go through. Uh, I, I kind of laugh at the middle school years right now. Uh, you know, your feet can be two different sizes. You... Uh, you don't know how to negotiate walking down a hallway like you used to. Uh, in fact, you want to talk about a clumsy season of life. It's the sixth grade year uh, mm -hmm. where people could just fall down for no reason. It's like you've walked <laughs> right back into kindergarten again. But things are changing. So uh, I would first off just say have the expectation that things are going to change. Second of all, you may not know all the things that are going to change. Uh, so what can you depend upon during that time? Well, I, I would say this, uh, you have a mind that is there to be grown and developed. You have, uh, you have a body that though there are mysterious things about it, I would challenge some of the philosophers of that time, not because I'm smarter than they are, but simply because of the fact that we're, for all the challenge and for all the things that we might not know about the body, there are many things we do know. So avail yourself of the things that you do know. Well, you're going to say, okay, well, what should I know? Uh, you need to get some exercise, friends. You need to develop the body. You need to play sports. Even if you're bad at them, play sports. Do something like this. You can work through some of those physical changes. How about developmental changes? Like uh, my voice is getting lower or my body is taking different forms. Whatever that looks like, I would just encourage you here. Listen, you're growing, you're developing, your body is doing the things it should do. Uh, you can you can still depend upon that. And there is still a good mission for, for your life. And I think I would use that to just kind of make a simple point here. Mm -hmm. uh, with all the change that can happen in your life, you still need to have good goals to reach for. You have to have goals to reach for. Uh, real quick, I, I had the privilege this past spring of getting to go to a conference uh, out in San Diego, California. I went to this session with uh, a woman who uh, who I, I won't name just for uh, out of respect to her, but she's the principal of a Christian school out in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, she... Unfortunately, while she was leading there, uh, due to a failed uh, a failed pipe in their building, her her building suffered a massive explosion, uh, and actually they lost most of their school building. And tragically, a few people died. Uh, it, thankfully, no, the school wasn't in session. But she, with a week to begin school, 
had half of a building and it was down two staff members and was faced in this awful, awful crisis. And people around her were asking the question, what do we do? Should we close down? Should we stop all these things? And she said, you know what? That would be the absolute wrong thing to do at this moment, because even though everything has changed, there is still good goals to shoot for. And so what she decided was to delay school one month. They, within that month, she found them a new location, temporary. Uh, she found them a temporary location, got it stocked with all their classroom needs, got it stocked with a brand new cafeteria, a place for music, all of these other things. And people challenged her, saying, why are we doing all this? Because she And she reminded them, we still have a task to accomplish. So I would encourage you with these few things, just to review, expect that change will happen. There are things you can know about change. It's not all mysterious. Uh, and just live with those changes, but also realize there are some very unexpected changes that happen in our lives. But you know what? It's not a reason to shut down. It is a reason to persevere. It's a reason to also set new goals for yourself and to challenge and push yourself, even though you've already been challenged. Uh, that's something uh, that honestly I've taken away for the current year that I'm in. Uh, there's been a lot of changes. I've been tasked with more leadership responsibility this year. Uh, I'm now overseeing an entire department of people that I didn't previously have. Uh, I'm now overseeing uh, a group of students who are overseeing our technology here at the school. Many things uh, have changed in my life, but I can just tell you this. Those changes have actually brought about some of the greatest uh, enjoyment of my year. And you might find some new life in those things. So for young leaders, change is difficult, but it might be where you find some of your greatest inspiration. There you go. There you go. Back to the book. Back to Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. The collectible classics edition, complete and unabridged. It also includes a glossary of Victorian and literary terms by Judith John. Uh, this one was published in the United Kingdom in 2019 by Flame Tree Publishing. Um, and, uh, this is, uh, this is a really little, great little edition. Like I said, it's got gold lame leafing, um, and, uh, it's got, uh, you know, it's got the nice gold lame on the outside of the cover there. Uh, very good, uh, very good edition. Of course, you can go pick up a fine copy at your own local bookstore. Back to Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. So Alice goes to a house and uh she winds up with a baby that looks like a pig i'm not gonna get into all of that and uh <laughs> some other absurd things occur there's some pepper being thrown around there's some sneezing there's a, a woman who speaks to her very shortly then there is an invitation to the red queen's garden party which we'll talk about in just a second and on her way to the garden party on her way to meet the red queen Alice meets one of the more titular characters in Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire Cat, from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, and I quote, So she set the little creature down and felt quite relieved to see it trot away quietly into the wood. If it had grown up, she said to herself, it would have made a dreadfully ugly child, but it makes a rather handsome pig, I think. 
And she began thinking over other children she knew who might do very well as pigs and was just saying to herself, if one only knew the right way to change them, when she was a little startled by seeing the Cheshire cat sitting on a bow of a tree a few yards off. The cat only grinned when it saw Alice. It looked good-natured, she thought. Still, it had very long claws and a great many teeth, so she felt that it ought to be treated with respect. Cheshire Puss, she began rather timidly, as she did not know at all whether it would like the name. However, it only grinned a little wider. Come, it's pleased so far, thought Alice, and she went on. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't really matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. Alice felt that this could not be denied, so she tried another question. What sort of people live about here? In that direction, the cat said, waving its right paw round, lives a hatter. And in that direction, waving the other paw, lives a March hare. Visit either you like. They're both mad. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know I'm mad? said Alice. You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. Alice didn't think that proved it at all. However, she went on, and how do you know that you're mad? Well, to begin with, said the cat, a dog's not mad. You grant that? I suppose so, said Alice. Well, then, the cat went on, you see, a dog growls when it's angry and wags its tail when it's pleased. Now, I growl when I'm pleased and wag my tail when I'm angry. Therefore, I'm mad. I call it purring, not growling, said Alice. Call it what you like, said the cat. Do you play croquet with the queen today? I should like it very much, said Alice, but I haven't been invited yet. You'll see me there, said the cat, and vanished. Alice was not much surprised at this. She was getting used to queer things happening. While she was looking at the place where it had been, it suddenly appeared again. By the by, what became of the baby? said the cat. I'd nearly forgotten to ask. It turned into a pig, Alice quietly said, just as if it had come back in a natural way. I thought it would, said the cat, and vanished again. Now, i got to admit, out of all the characters in Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> I am most partial to the Cheshire Cat. <laughs> For a whole variety of reasons that my children will tell you if you listen to them close enough. He is a creeping, creepy, grinning kitty. And he is the most enigmatic character, I would assert, in all of modern literature. And modern yeah. literature really begins in the 19th century. Um, that's when we really start to get our arms around this idea of the, the modern tensions between industry and agrarianism. And this idea of new knowledge that will eventually morph into scientism later on. Mm -hmm. And, of course, anxiety that we get about the future. That really all began in the 19th century. And continues on today. And so the Cheshire Cat, 
out of all the pets you could possibly have in literature, or even even the even the pigs and and the and the farm animals in George Orwell's Animal Farm can't really hold a cat or a light or much of anything else to the Cheshire cat. He stands out as an animatic character, and the reason why is because he's both wise and a little bit off-putting. For sure. Carol touches on something here that I think kids understand, and maybe I like the Cheshire Cat because I kind of deal with kids the way the Cheshire Cat deals with Alice. I don't speak to them as if they are children. Mm. So I've never used baby voices with my kids. I've always talked with them in whole languages and whole sentences and whole ideas. If my children ask me a question, they're going to get an answer. Matter of fact, they're going to get more than they probably bargained for. <laughs> they're going to get the answer. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's very valuable for children because, A, if you're a kid, if you're a child, if you're listening to this, you can smell a lie. You know when an adult is lying to you. You might know, might not know about what, and you might not know where, but you know something doesn't track. And the Cheshire cat refuses resolutely to deal with Alice as if she's only ever going to be a child. Mm. He deals with her as if she has agency and deserves to be given information, deserves to have the time of day given to her. He deals with her differently than any other character in Alice in Wonderland. The Cheshire cat just like your host, is not necessarily always warm and fuzzy, but he is valuable in spite of all the grinning. <laughs> and so, Matt, for kids who are maybe surrounded by adults who lie to them constantly, even their parents, and, and these would be lies that would be beneficial for them, right? We don't want to tell them the whole off-putting truth, or we don't want to have the whole conversation. We just want to we want to cordon things off and leave it in a box. Um, and I'm not talking about telling children an appropriate truth. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm right. talking about standardizing it down for a 10-year-old. A 10-year-old can understand COVID. <laughs> it can be mm -hmm. understandable for a 10-year-old. Uh, a 5-year-old can understand COVID. You can make that understandable for a 5-year-old. Yeah. Even if you don't understand it and you're 35, <laughs> right. you should be able to make it understandable for a 10-year-old. And yet, so many adults fail to make the complex understandable for children or just ignore them. Um, yeah. The Cheshire Cat doesn't do any of that. So what can we take... What, can, what do children need to be looking for in order to navigate the Cheshire cats or find them in their lives? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so my background is in education. Um, the education world, if done correctly, should be full of Cheshire cats. Uh, and, and honestly, I think they make some of the best teachers. Uh, the reason being, and you can kind of see this first off, uh, if you have the text in front of you, but... Let me just point out some of the things that the cat does. So she she asks a question. Mm -hmm. Would you tell me which way I ought to go from here? Mm -hmm. He responds with, that depends on where you want to go. Uh, and so there's a bit of a non-answer there. Mm -hmm. But also, she, she needs to acknowledge the fact that she's asked a non-question. Correct. Uh, <laughs> That's right. There's, there's not much here to go off of. And so... I would say, look at the people in your life, 
the the grown-ups in your life that at first off ask you questions and and push you to seek greater clarity mm-hmm. on things uh are you sure you're really clear on what you're asking uh, and I, I have to do this quite a bit. Uh, a lot of a lot of my job is actually uh, so. For instance, every Friday I do a Q and A day with my students. Uh, I have a uh, a simple Google form online where they can submit any qu- essay question that they want to me, and I will answer it. Half of the time, though, I actually spend the time. I will post the question as they wrote it on the board, and I will actually take the question apart before I answer it. Uh, a lot of times it's because the question's not asked the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be something as simple as like, did you really mean to say this or did you mean to say that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're wise, you're going to push for clarity and push for understanding. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to let it go until you get that. And that's, I think, one of the skills that the Cheshire, Cheshire cat points out to him is because uh, she goes, well, I don't really care where I go. And he goes, it doesn't matter which way you go. Uh, and he's not here to try to push her necessarily in one direction over another, which I think you should pay attention to that, too. So here's so first off, I would say wisdom pushes you to understand clarity for yourself. But second of all, uh, notice what this cat does. So she also asked, well, what sort of people are around here? What what kind of choices do I have? Mm-hmm. It's another like, okay, well, what are my options? Tell me, Mr. Westgate, what are my options? And so I'll say, well, sure, here are a couple of options for you. You can hold to this view. This view says these things. You can hold to this view. This view says these things. But do you really want to know about these views or do you just want me to tell you what to think? And that's something I run into a lot. Hmm. Uh, and I'll just tell you as a teacher, it's really frustrating and annoying after a while when you get a bunch of students who just want you to tell them what to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if that's all my job is, then I don't want to teach anymore. Mm-hmm. Because I'm giving, because at that point is what you just said, Hasan, uh, you need to have some agency. Mm-hmm. I, as a teacher, want you to build your agency. You know what I can deal with as a teacher, and you, some people can't, I understand this, but I think the best teachers are the teachers who actually challenge you to have your own agency mm-hmm. and push you to have your own agency. And then if you do have your own agency, they're going to press you on it mm-hmm. and make you understand why you hold to certain things. Mm-hmm. Those are going to be your best teachers. Those are going to be the people that will cause you to grow the most. Uh what I've had to realize as a student is a lot of times I want the teacher to be impressed with me. Mm. But you understand, if the teacher's really impressed with you, that teacher may not be helping you all that much either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something that I've had to grow in even personally as a student mm-hmm. uh, in the times when I've been a student is to this. I need to actually think about what are the things that I need to know and that I'm accountable for and then I need to go out and get those things down myself. Mm-hmm. Then when I do that, then I should go to the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've I've joked about this, but I tell my students, sometimes the best learning you're ever going to have is in your homework. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be with me. 
Uh, I may enlighten you on certain things, but you should learn the most from your own labor and your own work. And then I become more of a guide to that work. And I become someone who can help you uh, sort through the information that you have gotten and tell, help you kind of make sense of what you've got. Uh, sadly, uh, I encounter a lot of students who don't want to do that kind of work. All right. Mm -hmm. And I understand that because that was me at, at one point in my life. But I pray and I hope that these listeners, these young leaders that are listening to this podcast right now are going to grow in their abilities to work hard at whatever it is they're working on, building a business, uh, trying to understand a local political scene, uh, trying to understand the needs of their local community, whatever that may be. They should be as much of an expert as they possibly can on those things. And I think you will find when you are laboring as a Cheshire cat, or excuse me, when you are laboring on those tests, those Cheshire cats all of a sudden start to appear. Uh, and it may be a person in your life, or it may be, you know what, a bunch of old dead guys in things like this. Uh, or old dead women, too. I've learned from, I've learned from all of them. Damn. And, you, you begin to find those are the companions mm -hmm. that can mentor you in these things. So, you know what? You don't know who you're going to run into along the way. It may be Larry King, who is not even with us anymore. Uh, it may be a Cheshire cat, or it may be uh, someone who you encounter as you're working. Uh, I've just found this. The people that labor very hard usually find uh, the wisdom that they seek. You know, get wisdom and not only seek it, but get it. Right? Mm. There's something, there's something biblical about that, and uh, yeah, it's not only in the not only the getting of the wisdom. This is also biblical. You got to use the wisdom and pass it along, right? Absolutely. Uh, it, in fact, I, I'll just quickly add to that the mm. uh, the idea of wisdom and the idea of knowing. Mm. If you're going to go from scripture, it's interesting. If you were. Uh, if you were to look at uh, the Hebrew language, for example, uh, the word, I just did a paper on this this last fall, uh, the, dealing with the idea of memory and building knowledge, uh, it is completely foreign to the Old Testament Hebrew system uh, that you would build a memory of something without doing it. The idea of mere mental assent, like, oh, I know this, but I'm not going to do it, uh, that's called foolishness. Uh, you and I should have a conversation about Maslow's hierarchy of needs then, because I <laughs> the Hebrews would probably not have, probably not want to deal with that. Anyhow, uh, no, that just, that's exactly what, that's immediately where my brain went. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Hey, Sada, I would love to have that conversation with you. I, I think he had some wonderful ideas, but unfortunately, um, you know, you can only be ignorant once. That's what a high school teacher said. After that, you're rebellious or you just don't care. <laughs> well, this idea of wisdom bringing clarity, which I loved Matt bringing to us, and that um, that education should be full of Cheshire cats, your education experience as yeah. um, not only a kid, but a kid at heart, right, should be full of these sort of questions, these sort of vanishing, grinning, slightly threatening, mm -hmm. but 
also potentially full of promise kinds of beasts in your way um, is an interesting sort of thought. Um, not sort of thought. It is an interesting thought. It's an interesting point because it also ties into this idea of agency. And agency just means the ability to make a decision, right? So if you're listening to this podcast, you made a decision to listen to the podcast. You can also make a decision to turn it off. That's agency. Yeah. You could make a decision to take information from the podcast that you've just listened to, and you can make a decision to choose to um, to uh, to pass along that information to people that you know, or you can make the decision to just internalize it and consume it and never do anything with it at all. That's agency. Agency is the ability to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And agency, the ability to make a decision, which is what we get from broadening our expanse of knowledge but also broadening our expanse of wisdom through hopefully the vehicle of education. Agency is a form of respect. I'm put in mind of the old movie, uh, old for those of us who are listening, but not old for me, it's in my timeline, um, but Dead Poet Society with, uh, with Robin Williams. And, uh, you know, if you have your parents' permission, go check out that movie. There's some tough stuff in there. Uh, but the teacher in that movie, played by Robin Williams, um, gave his students agency uh, by first dealing with them with respect. Mm. In the same way that the Cheshire Cat dealt with Alice with respect. Sure, Matt is correct. Did Alice ask unclear questions and have a muddied viewpoint because she's quite confused? Absolutely. But she still deserves respect. Mm. Even the confused deserve respect. Even the confused have a right to their agency. Even the confused need not necessarily to be educated, but even the confused need to have access, need to be able to have access to knowledge and wisdom. Oh, and so agency yeah. and providing that to them is a form of respect. And look, I did my fair share of teaching back in the day. I, I taught students a little bit older than Matt actually Uh what I used to tell folks who are in Matt's position of teaching is I get the students that are at the end of the educational journey right before they get into adulthood, right? And teaching folks who are at the end of the educational journey, you get to see just how much agency they actually got in the 12 years they were in the milieu or how little yeah. they got. And it's usually at that point, and I was a lot tougher than Matt, it's usually at that point I'm a lot less forgiving <laughs> because there are things you should have already gotten. <laughs> and if you didn't, well, it doesn't really matter which way you go then, does it? Yep. It's true. So take your 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 schooling years seriously and i know you probably do all of you who are listening out here take your schooling years seriously and watch closely for the kinds of teachers who are giving you agency not the ones who are feeding you the answer not the ones who are making you or, or, or proposing a particular way of thinking to you but instead look out for those teachers watch out for those those individuals and it may not necessarily be the teacher. It may be the janitor. It may be the principal. It may be an yep. administrator. It may not even be the person teaching the subject. It may be somebody on the outside of that subject. Or it may be even, and I would hope even these days, it may be even the books that you are reading, the leaders that are inside of those books that are giving you agency. Yep. Look out for those kinds of folks. Look out for those Cheshire cats. Look for their grins. And uh, 
and pay attention to their growls and their swishing tails. Yep. <laughs> they will tell you which way to go. And Hazan, if I could make a quick remark, I know you would like Absolutely. to move on, but yeah, uh, no, go ahead. No, so a uh, a thought I had in listening to to what you just said, especially regarding agency, is this: uh, there's a there's this one of my favorite film series. I, I, I'm sorry, originally it was a television series. Uh, is Band of Brothers? Oh uh, yeah. So and I and I would definitely urge my young viewers to check in with your parents before checking that one out. Um, that it it doesn't hold back on its depiction of World War II horror, but um, perhaps you can get to the point in life where you might see that, or even perhaps read Stephen Ambrose's book on on it. But uh, I will never forget an episode that takes place in the woods of Bastogne, which is one of the most mm. uh, it, one of the most trying parts of the Allied. Uh, battle i mean the uh the 101st uh suffered tremendous pressure from the elements from the pressure from being surrounded by the german army uh from all kinds of awful awful things there is an american leader that is listed in this uh in this as being put in command over some of the over some of the 101st and I've never forgotten this comment that was said in there. It scares me to death because I've seen how easy it is to do this very thing. The comment was this about this leader. He said, they said he wasn't a bad leader because he made bad decisions. He was a bad leader because he made no decisions. And I'll just tell you, for those of us, uh, and I say us because I've been that person in my life when I was younger, uh, I... For those that choose to develop little agency, you're going to either be forced into a spot where you, in crisis mode, have to come up with agency, or you deflect it onto other people and hereby compromise all of your leadership in doing so. Uh, so, young person, I would say this. Can you make your own decisions? Labor to do as many as you can. Make the right decisions when you can. Uh, you should always be able to make a good, right decision. But even if you make a bad decision, I would still be far more understanding of that person than the one who makes no decisions. And unfortunately, we're just watching a plethora of leaders who make no decisions, uh, who, who just deflect to someone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know what? It's an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I would urge you, uh, don't be like that. Press in and make a decision. Back to the book. Back to Alice in Wonderland. There's been an invitation, and Alice has wandered into a garden and uh, run across three gardeners who are painting flowers. If you haven't read Alice in Wonderland, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but you're going to want to pick it up. And in this chapter... Well, a person in authority who should be making decisions well, but is in reality a tyrant, approaches directly 
from Lewis Carroll from Alice in Wonderland. And once again, as I always say on these podcasts, we don't read the whole book. We read excerpts. This isn't uh, an audio book, and it may feel a little bit like a book club. Uh, we read enough of the book, hopefully, to get you interested to go out and pick it up yourself, annotate it, mark it up, highlight it, have a conversation with Lewis Carroll in the margins with your own pen or pencil, and really imbibe and take in these insights so that you can grow with wisdom and clarity. So back to the book, back to Alice in Wonderland. First came 10 soldiers carrying clubs. These were all shaped like the three gardeners, oblong and flat with their hands and feet at the corners. Next, the 10 courtiers. These were ornamented all over with diamonds and walked two and two as soldiers did. After these came the royal children, there were ten of them, and the little deers came jumping merrily along, hand in hand, in couples. They were all ornamented with hearts. Next came the guests, mostly kings and queens, and among them Alice recognized the white rabbit. It was talking in a hurried, nervous manner, smiling at everything that was said, and went by without noticing her. Then followed the knave of hearts, carrying the king's crown on a crimson velvet cushion, and last of all, this grand procession, there came the king and queen of hearts. Alice was rather doubtful whether she ought not to lie down on her face like the three gardeners, but she could not remember ever having heard of such a rule at processions. And besides, what would be the use of a procession, thought she, if people had to all lie down upon their faces so that they couldn't see it? So she stood still where she was and waited. When the procession came opposite to Alice, they all stopped and looked at her, and the queen said severely, Who is this? She said it to the knave of hearts, who only bowed and smiled in reply. Idiot, said the queen, tossing her head impatiently, and turning to Alice, she went on, What's your name, child? My name is Alice, so please, your majesty, said Alice very politely. But she added to herself, Why, they're only a pack of cards. After all, I needn't be afraid of them. And who are these? said the queen, pointing at the three gardeners who were lying around the rose tree. For you see, as they were lying on their faces and the pattern on their backs was the same as the rest of the pack, she could not tell whether they were gardeners or soldiers or courtiers or three of her own children. <laughs> How should I know? said Alice, surprised at her own courage. It's no business of mine. The queen turned crimson with fury, and after glaring at her for a moment like a wild beast, screamed, Off with the head! Off! Nonsense! said Alice, very loudly and decidedly. And the queen was silent. The king laid his hand upon her arm and timidly said, Consider, my dear, she is only a child. The queen turned angrily away from him and said to the knave, Turn them over! The knave did so, <laughs> very carefully, with one foot. Get up, said the queen in a shrill, loud voice, and the three gardeners instantly jumped up and began bowing to the king, the queen, the royal children, and everybody else. <laughs> Leave off that, screamed the queen. You make me giddy. And then, turning to the rose tree, she went on. What have you been doing here? May it please your majesty, said two, in a very humble tone, going down on one knee as he spoke. We were trying. I see, said the queen, who had meanwhile been examining the roses. Off with their heads! And the procession moved on, three of the soldiers remaining behind to execute the unfortunate gardeners who ran to Alice for protection. You shan't be beheaded, said Alice, and she put them into a large flower pot that stood near. The three soldiers wandered about for a minute or two looking for them and then quietly marched off after the others. Are their heads off? shouted the queen. 
Their heads are gone, if it please your majesty, the soldier shouted in reply. That's right, shouted the queen. Can you play croquet? The soldiers were silent and looked at Alice, as the question was evidently meant for her. Yes, shouted Alice. Come on, then, roared the queen, and Alice joined the procession, wondering very much what would happen next. <laughs> it's, it's a very fine day, said a timid voice at her side. She was walking by the white rabbit, who was peeping anxiously up into her face. Very, said Alice. Where's the duchess? Hush, 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 said the rabbit in a low, hurry tone. He looked anxiously over his shoulder as he spoke, and then raised himself upon tiptoe, putting his mouth close to her ear, and whispered, She's under sentence of execution. What for? said Alice. Did you say what a pity? the rabbit asked. No, I didn't, said Alice. I don't think it's at all a pity. I said what for? She boxed the queen's ears, the rabbit began. Alice gave a little scream of laughter. Oh, hush, the rabbit whispered in a frightened tone. The queen will hear you. You see, she came rather late, and the queen said, Get to your places, shouted the queen in a voice of thunder, and the people began running about in all directions, tumbling up against each other. However, they got settled down in a minute or two, and the game began. Alice thought she had never seen such a curious croquet ground in all her life. It was all ridges and furrows. The balls were live hedgehogs, the mallets live flamingos, and the soldiers had to double themselves up and stand on their hands and feet to make the arches. Now, the game goes on like this for a little while with screaming and hedgehogs moving around and flamingos behaving unruly in an unruly fashion. And then, well, finally... Alice decides she's had enough, and she was looking about for some way of escape back to the book, and wondering whether she could get away without being seen when she noticed a curious appearance in the air. It puzzled her very much at first, but after watching it a minute or two, she made it out to be a grin, and she said to herself, It's the Cheshire Cat. Now I shall have somebody to talk to. How are you getting on? said the cat, as soon as there was mouth enough for it to speak with. Alice waited till the eyes appeared and then nodded. It's no use speaking to it, she thought, till its ears have come or at least one of them. In another minute, the whole head appeared, and then Alice put down her flamingo and began an account of the game, feeling very glad she had someone to listen to her. The cat seemed to think that there was enough of it now in sight, and no more of it appeared. I don't think they play at all fairly, Alice began in a rather complaining tone, and they all quarrel so dreadfully one can't hear oneself speak, and they don't seem to have any rules in particular, at least if there are, nobody attends to them, and you've no idea how confusing it is, all the things being alive, for instance, there's the arch I've got to go through next, walking about the other end of the ground, and I should have croqueted the queen's hedgehog just now, only it ran away when it saw mine coming. How do you like the queen? <laughs> said the cat in a low voice. Not at all, said Alice. She's so extremely... Just then she noticed that the queen was close behind her, listening. So she went on, likely to win that it's hardly worthwhile finishing the game. The queen smiled and passed on. By the way, pause there. I was reading this out loud to my 12-year-old and my 5-year-old uh, on the floor of my living room a couple of weeks ago, and my 12-year-old laughed out loud at that moment. Like, she literally laughed out loud. <laughs> Because <laughs> it is the most amazing visual image in your head possible. Yeah. Back to the book. Who are you talking to, said the king, going up to Alice and looking at the cat's head with great curiosity. It's a friend of mine, a Cheshire cat, said Alice. Allow me to introduce it. I don't like the look of it at all, said the king. However, it may kiss my hand if it likes. I'd rather not, the cat remarked. <laughs> don't be impertinent, said the king, and don't look at me like that. He got behind Alice as he spoke. A cat may look at a king, said Alice. I've read that in some book, but I don't remember where. 
Well, it must be removed, said the king very decidedly. And when he called upon the queen, who was passing at the moment, My dear, I wish you would have this cat removed. The queen had only one way of settling all difficulties, great or small. Off with his head, she said, without even looking around. I'll fetch the executioner myself, said the king eagerly. <laughs> and he hurried off. Now, things pretty much progressed the way you would think they would progress with a disappearing cat with no head, whose head is about to be taken off, who can just disappear. A weak king who is in service to a tyrannical queen who is being mocked by the forces of the new represented in Alice. And, of course, an argument ensues. And I'll wrap up my reading with this. The moment Alice appeared, she was appalled. She was appealed to by all three, the three individuals arguing about the execution of the Cheshire cat, to settle the question. And they repeated their arguments to her, though, as they all spoke at once, she found it very hard indeed to make out exactly what they said. The executioner's argument was that you couldn't cut off a head unless there was a body to cut it off from that he had never had to do such a thing before, and he wasn't going to begin at his time of life. <laughs> the king's argument was that anything that had a head could be beheaded, and that you weren't to talk nonsense. The queen's argument was that if something wasn't done about it in less than no time, she'd had everybody executed all around. It was this last remark that had made the whole party look so grave and anxious. Alice could think of nothing else to say, but it belongs to the duchess. You better ask her about it. She's in prison, the queen said to the executioner. Fetch her here. And the executioner went off like an arrow. The cat's head began fading away the moment he was gone, and by the time he had come back with the duchess, it had entirely disappeared, so the king and the executioner ran wildly up and down looking for it, while the rest of the party went back to the game. If there is one stand-in in all of literature for the example of blind, willful, bullying tyranny, <laughs> it's the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> now, it's easy to bag on the Red Queen, but let's think about this for just a minute. She's at the top of a tyranny of, pack of, of a pack of playing cards that are all running around in chaos, and part of this can be blamed on the fact that she is chaotic in and of herself. She's short-tempered, she's temperamental, she's impatient, and she's relatively pedestrian. And by pedestrian, I just mean she has one tool, a hammer, mm -hmm. and everything that she sees is a nail. And she's a bully. Fundamentally, she's a bully. Now, there's a lot of different bullies in a lot of different places in the world today, more so ever than there were when I was a kid. But even when I was a kid, I knew one way to deal with a the bully. There's only one way. You have to, and even Alice does this in this example. You have to confront the bully. You have to be firm. You have to be courageous. And then the behavior changes. Uh, short story just to prove the point. When I was about 13 or 14, I moved into a neighborhood. It doesn't matter what city it was in, but it was in an upper, mis upper Midwest city that rhymes with Chicago. And when I, when, I moved into, when I moved into that neighborhood, there were several bullies in the neighborhood. And uh, me being the kind of person that I am, and by the way, I was, you know, relatively tall, relatively skinny, um, 
but also relatively skinny, right? I don't think I weighed more than 120 pounds my entire teenage years. I was small boned, such as it were, but I have a big mouth. As you can see, I've got a podcast these days and I knew how to run it. And I also had a sense of justice, which I still do possess and uh, a no nonsense streak in me that didn't tolerate other people getting stomped on, particularly if those other people were my sisters or people who I just knew were psychologically or emotionally weaker than me. Now, this is the era before the internet. This is before cell phones. This is before social media. But I don't necessarily think fundamentally that anything would change these days if I were 12 or 13 these days. I would still be the same me, and you can go right on ahead and put me on a fail army show all day. I don't care. It's not what drives me. Anyway, there were bullies in the neighborhood, and uh, one of them tried to pick on somebody one time. Or he might have tried to take something from me, I can't remember. But I remember warning him. I remember telling him. You got one more shot, and you do that, you best not miss. And he took a shot, and he missed, and then we had our fight. Now, back in the day, you know, before cyberbullying, before text messaging, before any of this, we did solve the problem with our fists, right and wrong or indifferent. That's how we solved the problem, and the problem got fixed to the degree that for the last two years that I lived there, and a few years afterward, I actually regretted moving away from the suburb of that city that rhymes with Chicago, because he became my best friend. Mm. He wanted to do everything for me. He made sure other kids in the neighborhood left me alone, and he even made sure that his older brother who at the time was dealing drugs in the neighborhood, which I didn't know until much later, he made sure that he left me alone as well. Bullies can be straightened out. Mm -hmm. Direct confrontation is the only thing that straightens out a bully. Yep. Is it scary? Yes, absolutely. Is it a risk, a high-risk, high-reward move? Yes, absolutely. And were there, was there many times in my life when I did that move, when it didn't work for me? Yes, absolutely. And I have the scars to prove it. But if you don't take a risk, you'll never get a reward. And it's just like with the Red Queen. Alice confronts her directly and really pushes back on that cardinal move off with her head and says, no, you won't. And it stops right there. Mm -hmm. Kids, there's something to learn from here, right? And the Red Queen's character shifts a little bit in Through the Looking Glass because she reminds Alice that the fact is, here, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place, which is what makes the Red Queen a tyrant in the first place. Bullies try to freeze the moment versus allowing change to happen. Yeah. Matt... The Red Queen's a tough character for kids to get their arms around because tyranny yeah. is hard to recognize in childhood when everything seems so close. It becomes a little clearer when you have the benefit of adulthood and a few years underneath your belt. Yeah. But how can children recognize the tyranny that's happening right next to them, four feet below the viewpoint of every other adult in the room? Man, another great question. So I, I would say, you know, first off, 
to uh, to just realize this is very common. This happens quite a bit, and uh, sometimes uh, it's very direct and clear. You get you get red queens off with their head. Um, you do this, or I will physically hurt you, or do this, and I will attack you on social media, or do this, and I will share this picture with people. Uh, those are some of the more darker examples, by the way, you could get into later on in your high school years. But And I would just tell you, for the, for the love of all that is good, my young friends, do not share any kind of picture with anybody, please, please. Not only will you make my life so much easier, if I could just uh, speak selfishly for a moment, uh, you will save me a great deal of drama. You will save administrators. Uh, if you go to a school, you will save them hours of staring at computer screens. Uh, you will you will preserve something far more valuable, your own integrity. Uh, and that's ultimately what this comes down to anyway. All right. Uh, why do you challenge red queens? Why do you challenge bullies? Uh, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It is not right that power gets imbalanced to the degree where it's not just, you know, me against you. It's me over you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's where it's not me versus you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Me versus you, that's competition, mm -hmm. right? Competition can be very healthy. Competition can be good. And you can have friendships that thrive on such things. That That's not what I'm referring to here. Uh, this is a situation where I am trying to shift the dynamic. If I'm the bully, I shift the dynamic so that I gain power over you and I aim to keep you down. Mm -hmm. uh, as a way of building myself up hmm. that's that's a bullying dynamic so whether you experience that personally or you observe it with another person the right thing to do is you need to shift the dynamic back to uh, a more friendly and to a more equal standing um you should not have people in that kind of dynamic ever mm -hmm. All right. That can happen in very drastic, very clear ways. But you need to even watch out for ways that it can happen. I, I think the I, I'm not as much in corporate America as as many are. But I, I think a term I've heard used is microaggression. Mm -hmm. uh, now, some of those, frankly, we just need to grow a thicker skip. All right. Mm -hmm. If I can just be uh, clear on that. But uh, there are ways I can verbally pe put people down. Mm -hmm. uh, I can also do wonderful things like uh, I've got a rule in my classroom uh, that uh, my students will show respect verbally and non-verbally mm -hmm. to each other and to that because non-verbal disrespect is still disrespect. Mm -hmm. Rolling eyes, sighing, uh, looking at your phone when someone's presenting, all of these other things communicate disrespect and that can even be used in this. So I, I'm, I apologize, I'm kind of outlining how this can look and I might be belaboring my point a bit. Uh, how do I approach this? Well, first off, you need to pursue the integrity and do the right thing. Uh, so I think Hassan has shown you a great way. You need to stand up for yourself. It is right to, to do such a thing. You should not be placed in that kind of dynamic yourself. But if you observe it in someone else, you also need to do that. By the way, the statistic 
for bullying is this. If a peer intervenes for another peer in a bullying situation, the bully is stopped in somewhere around five to 10 seconds. I mean, we're not talking about a very long time here, mm-hmm. but this is the kind of thing you need to do. Alice illustrates this beautifully. Uh, you need to challenge it. You need to challenge the approach and ask questions and say, no, there's got to be a better solution than this. Uh, we're not going to fire everybody we don't like. We're not going to, um, and I just heard about a pastor recently who shouldn't be a pastor, frankly, who is putting church members he doesn't trust under surveillance, like hiring private investigators. Well, okay, maybe you're not that extreme, but do you cut people out of the picture because they did something to you, or do you treat them like they're lesser than you, or do you like just cut them out of the picture enough so that they don't have what they need to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you've gone from being someone who's been aggressed to being an aggressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I say a lot here, and probably I could have been more succinct, but uh, I say a lot here to say this. Uh, you need to mold your own leadership approach to guard against being bullied yourself, to guard and stand up for others who are being bullied, but uh, you also need to watch that you don't get into it yourself. Uh, you you will get mistreated as a leader. You will get put down. You will get mocked. You will get challenged. You need to respond to that appropriately, but you also need to realize you as a leader can create a dynamic where you, uh, though you've been wronged, become someone who's also perpetrating a wrong in a different approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to be wise and mindful of that, too. Walking a fine line there between <clears throat> confronting the Red Queen and becoming the Red Queen. Yeah. Um, the line between the two of those approaches lies deep in the heart of every human being. Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you for giving us your insights on Lewis Carroll's great Alice in Wonderland. What can leaders do to stay on the path? How can we, I mean, we always wrap up kind of in this direction. Um, I'll kind of let you go there and I'll give my final, my final closing thoughts here. But Matt, what, what can we do? What can, what can kids as leaders or the young at heart do to stay on the path? How can we leverage Alice in Wonderland to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow? Or, you know, if we fall down the rabbit hole, come out on the other side, uh, with a little more knowledge and a little more wisdom. Yeah. Uh, I would just make a few remarks. First off, avail yourself to all the wisdom and knowledge that you can find uh, and and be someone who can be uh, a self-starter and Mm -hmm. self-educated. Not saying that you know everything. No, I think this story would prove the opposite uh, of someone who knows knows it all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say it's, it's someone who can shift, someone who can adapt, uh, someone who uh, in, uh, externally seeks to maintain somewhat of a calm presence, while internally there's quite a dialogue going on and a lot of evaluation and consideration going on. Uh, it's someone who, when encountered with, uh, with, a wise, with a wise teacher, a Cheshire cat, it's someone who can consider uh, 
the questions that are being asked and, and wondering, I wonder if I can ask better questions. I, I wonder if there's more here I need to consider. And then when you when you're blessed to come up with the uh, the riches of good knowledge, good wisdom, uh, what is right, what is wrong, good direction, hold to it. Don't give it up. Uh, don't be pressured out of it. Don't be one who is uh, afraid of a challenge, but instead know what is there and stand with what is there. Uh, oftentimes it's not knowing what is right. It's being consistent and faithful mm -hmm. in those things. And you know what? You may not always be. Uh, you may you may th think you were and then find out you weren't. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, what I have found is that there's grace to restore, to be restored and to do it again and to seek to build up from there. So that's how I would close today. Excellent. Thank you, Matt, for that close. And I would agree with all of that. And I would button back to the beginning. So if you've made it to the end of this podcast, great. You've proven that you can listen and you can pay attention, you can glean, but you've also proven that you can stick in your persistence and mm -hmm. perseverance. So that's good too. There, I know that there are, and Matt knows too, that there are absurd pressures in the world around you. And we're aware of this mm. from the stuff you see on social media, all the way to the stuff you hear from your friends. Sometimes it may seem as though it's just better to avoid it all, curl up with one or more streaming shows or the next TikTok video and just sort of let your mind cascade off the cliff but I want to tell you something and I'm not saying you can't watch another YouTube short I'm not even saying you can't watch another TikTok video I'm not even saying you can't watch another Netflix streaming show if your parents have given you permission to do this go right on ahead but I don't think that that's ever been the answer mm -hmm. The answer has always been the one that's difficult. And, you know, childhood is where you get your practice reps. It's where you put in the rounds because you're going to be an adult a lot longer than you're going to be a kid. Yeah. And the pressure is going to be a lot heavier there than it is now. So face your fears, follow the white rabbit, and get out on the road of adventure toward facing problems and questions whether they're posed by caterpillars, Cheshire cats, or or even red queens, and all of her obsequious, and that's a big word, go look that one up, all of her obsequious courtiers. And by the way, you're going to run into a lot of those too. You're probably already seeing them. You just don't have the word for it. And you'll discover, if you're a kid or a kid at heart, just like Alice did, a way to untangle your confusion, increase your courage, reduce your anxiety and add some seeds to that future wheat field spread out before you. And I don't make too many guarantees, but I do guarantee that if you go along this path, if you take this fork in the road, if you embark on this part of the journey, well, you will have better outcomes and you will become the person that you never thought you could be. And well, that's it for me. Matthew, do you have anything to promote today for our folks here on the podcast? Any ways to get a hold of you or get in touch with you? 
Yeah, very simply, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. That would be uh, Westgate underscore Matt. All right. Uh, keep it simple. I'm, I maintain a modest presence out there, but uh, mainly because I'm pretty busy with my students here. But I, uh, I, I do maintain a presence there. And if you want to reach out, I'd love to connect with you. Awesome. So we will have a link to uh, connect with Matt on Twitter. We'll have a link to his social media platform there on Twitter. And of course, you can connect with us in all of the cool kinds of ways that you can connect with us. And we did run our Kids Leadership Institute earlier this year, and we are in the process of converting that over into a much larger product. So please stay tuned here for continued updates and more insights on that. And of course, continue to listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, these bonus editions that are featuring children's books. Our next one coming up will be on The Wizard of Oz. And our last one for the end of the year will be on, hopefully, The Velveteen Rabbit. So stay tuned for those two books. Otherwise, stay on the leadership path, keep going in the direction that you're going in, and attain wisdom to achieve clarity. Mm-hmm.